Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Dole Association of Victoria presents the 34th Malvern Dole Fair on Saturday, October the 12th. On at the Malvern Town Hall from 10 till 5, there will be antique to modern dolls, original craft works, art and craft supplies, fabrics, fashion, displays and raffles, as well as doll repairs by David Short. Find them on Facebook, the Malvern Doll Fair, Saturday the 12th of October. A 3CR supporter. To gardening is back, hosted by Gardening Australia's Costa Georgiatis, celebrating sustainability and all things green for one day only. Featuring free workshops and demonstrations, hands-on kids' activities and over 35 market stalls to get you in the garden and thinking about sustainable living this October. Spring into gardening, Sunday, October 13 at Victoria Gardens, Paran. See the City of Stonington website for details. A 3CR supporter. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC. A 3CR supporter. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for uh, Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, Marcus is running a little bit late, but he'll turn up. And uh, just before it's uh, we turn into daylight saving, we've got uh, a... Uh, a lovely day and uh, it's uh, leisurely and light and uh, tomorrow it will be dark. So uh, enjoy this particular day in the early morning and the hours that uh, we're savouring right at this moment. Uh, we're going to uh, go quite, we've got a lot of things to cover this morning and uh, we're going to go directly to speaking to uh, 
Debbie Brennan, who is part of the push, and uh, I'll let her explain what it is that we're here to talk about. G'day, Debbie. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Annie. Um, the uh, where um, there's going, there's this uh, announcement that's being made that uh, there's going to be a, a fascist conference, a, a, a concert. On the twelfth of October in Melbourne, what have you what have you heard about this? What we know about it is it's a concert that's uh, held every year. Um, it's around about this time, um, celebrating the anniversary, the death of a Blood and Honor founder, and so it's being organised by Blood and Honor in Australia and the Southern Cross Hammerskins, both. Um, openly Nazi organizations, and um, their he- headline group is a group called Fortress, which is really big on white power music. So um, White they, power music, goodness gracious. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just out there. So um, they their, their location, they're keeping very, very secret. Um, only those they can personally vouch for are going to be allowed in. Um, they will only, you know, let the police know, I think, just before the the concert, um, expecting that the police will um, protect them. And, yep, that's what's happening. So how is that possible that they can be uh, so uh, cagey when it comes to the police, for example? Well, for one thing... Um, Why, it, is there a special a, rule for them or something? <laughs> it's, uh, well, we have known over the last few years of organizing um, against fascists in the far right that um, the, the police do facilitate what they do. They facilitate their marches, and, of course, they would be facilitating this concert, I would think. Um but the other thing, too, is that these concerts are actually, you know, legal. Uh, they, you know, cross the T's and dot the I's. Um, and they, like I say, they've had these uh, concerts over, I think, the last 25 or so years. And so they, they've been held in the past in, um, you know, pubs and clubs and community centers and River cruises, so it's it's something that um, they would expect the police for those couple of reasons to um, to protect them. Now you you would say that it's not just a harmless uh, mm. a, a concert, you know, like it's not just a, get, a getting together of people to enjoy their their version of music. This is what you'd say. Well. The thing is that they are Nazis, and these particular groups are very violent. Like they're, they kill people. Um, they've, uh, they're known for attacking, um, other people's events. And in fact, probably, um, the, the, the most deadly attack was not so long ago in 2012 when they killed six people. Um, at a Sikh gathering in Wisconsin in the United States. So they are your stormtroopers. Um, they are a very dangerous 
uh, nasty piece of work. The uh, there have been calls by different groups other than your own to actually get the police to shut down this concert. But uh, there have yeah. Sorry, yes, no, no, no. Tell, tell, who are those people? Mm. Well, so far um, we know that the Anti-Defamation Commission, um, which is a conservative Jewish organization, Get Up, and a Liberal Party MP, David Southwick, have put out the call to the police to prevent this this concert from happening. And we push has a very different position on this. Um, we say that this is actually a very dangerous kind of call to make because we cannot appeal to or rely on um, the state and its its police to be the ones who decide what can go ahead and what cannot go ahead. And I think probably a lot of listeners who have been part of or following what's happened just in the anti-fascist organizing over the last few years, but just generally speaking, we have to just recall that um, recently, for example, is the Victorian police who um, were called in to shut down the Extinction Rebellion climate protest. And we, we hear the federal government calling for, you know, criminalizing that kind of protest and kicking people off welfare who are on welfare who protest. Um, it's the same police who um, we know racially profile um, young people of color, and um, in in our in our suburbs of, of Melbourne, from Flemington and Footscray through various other suburbs, we know that it's the same police who are responsible for killing First Nations people. Um, and that that killing doesn't stop. So we we can't look to the police to be the ones deciding who can hold an event and who cannot hold an event. We ourselves, who have been out there in the streets to stop Nazis and the far right, we've been pepper sprayed by them. We've been we've been um, pushed and shoved and arrested and charged by them. Oh, and, and uh, also characterized as. Uh, uh similar extremists, as it were. Sorry, Annie, say that Well, again. well, the, the mainstream uh, soft-cushioned, fat-bummed po- mm-hmm. uh, politicians like to argue, people like Morrison and Trump and people of this silk like to say that uh, uh, this is a battle between two extremes. Mm. That the, exactly. Yeah, which, which exactly. is a smokescreen, actually. It, well, that's exactly what it is. Um, by characterizing it that way, and by also using the you know the free free speech trope, um, what that does is that it's actually um, the road to criminalizing um, those of us who are in the streets, who are organizing in the streets, to stop this violence and to stop these groups. Um, of hate, these dangerous groups. So um, that's what they rely on. This is why a couple of years ago, the state government in Victoria was able to pass those anti-masking laws. Um, 
that's a very dangerous kind of a law because that's part of, you know, the criminalizing of protest. And I think that we can expect to see this ramping up against and, us. and this is why you're arguing, I guess, that uh, using the police as the uh, benchmark of uh, um, of uh, right behaviour, as it were, is probably a bit um, pushing it a bit too far. Well, it's we've got to see it for what it is, and we do we do need to understand as well as I know we do um, that. In the meantime, we're also watching the police being highly militarized. And any of us who have been out there when they've been there in their full force um, can see what this looks like and what it can, um, that it can even worsen. So, um, yes, to use the police as a benchmark for deciding um, who can and cannot do things is putting our faith in the wrong quarters. It's the same thing as calling on the government not to allow a visa for somebody to come into Australia. Um, it can be the most disgusting person like Nigel Farage, um, but it can also be someone like Chelsea Manning. So um, we cannot call on the capitalist state to be um, using its repressive powers Um whether it be the police or whether it be the government or any other authority. So what is your view? What is Push's view about this? Well, if we're not going to be relying on that, then we have to be relying on ourselves. And um, Push's full name is Push Organising and Educating to Build a United Front Against Fascism. And this is exactly what Push is arguing for that it's becoming far clearer, far more urgent to us, the absolute need that those of us who are targets of the fascists and the far right, that is the working class and all oppressed groups, we need to be uniting. We have to form a united front. And a united front, by that we mean that organizations that represent us, whether it be First Nations organizations, unions, feminist groups, etc., um, and individuals, we have we have a range of you know political ideas, but we come together around agreed principles, and we have to organize democratic and in a united, disciplined way, and it's through that kind of united front organizing, that's where the power lies. And we have to believe in our power because we're the ones who have the interest to not only keep pushing back these dangers whenever they show themselves, but we've got to defeat them. And we actually can. And something that we make, um, a, a point we make very, very strongly is that it's um, of all organizations and we need all the organizations all of them, the unions have to come in on this because the unions are where um, most of us or a lot of us are organized as workers. But unions, because of that fact, are the chief targets of fascists. We only have to look at history to know that. So that's our answer to this. And this is why um, we would 
love to talk to any organizations who are interested in the idea of the United Front and keep building that United Front to stop these fascists. Now, um, it's interesting that there should be this uh, cultural event, you'd call it, this concert that they're in uh, developing. Um, is there going to be any uh, direct response to this concert? Not that I'm aware of. Um, and I think this goes back to what um, what I was just talking about, which is a united front. If we had a strong, diverse united front um, that could take on what is involved, we'd be able to address these things. Yeah. And so the first and foremost thing that's important for us is to go beyond the, you know, headbutting to actually organize a very strong, huge, diverse, democratic, united, disciplined force because we are dealing with violent people. And I don't mean just the fascists and the far right. The police are armed. And so we, we really do need to um, be build ourselves for this because the times ahead um, require it. On another issue, which is a, a kind of a soft sell version of the same thing, I would argue, people may have noticed that there's posters up on around, well, certainly around Mooney Ponds in Brunswick, I've seen, that are advertising a new movie called The Rise of Jordan Peterson, which is a um, documentary and it's uh, premiering on October the 10th, which is two days before this uh, concert. Now, yeah. um, now Jordan Peterson is being uh, billed as uh, having a, um, a meteoric rise and it's all around his uh, great ability to uh, call out political correctness. Um, and it's been argued that he he is kind of a soft sell for all those frustrated young men, white young men who uh, want to uh, express their frustrations and that he is a lightning rod for this. Uh, do you see that there is a concern, there should be concern around or more discussion around what someone like Jordan Peterson represents? Most definitely, and you're you're absolutely right in um, what you're characterizing there. He's he's part of the global alt right, and the alt right is that part of the far right that um, wants to come across as intellectual and respectable, and um, like we've seen the Stephen Molyneux and the Lauren Southerns and and that ilk that are that are part of it, and um, it is it is a movement that is building globally. Um, Jordan Peterson, we might remember, came out uh, to Australia, did a tour of Australia and New Zealand um, just this last February. And he does come across as, um, you know, some, some reasonable person, but he is a nasty piece of work. And so whether it's the, 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 the hammer skins and blood and honor on at, at on one part of this this line, or to Jordan Peterson on another section of this line, it's still the same line. 
It's a very dangerous ideology, and Jordan Peterson is is all about um, not not only attracting disaffected young white men, but blaming um, those of us who organize um, for our rights and defend our rights, such as, you know, blaming feminism for society going down the gurgler or, um, or calling out white supremacy as a lie and so on. So um, we do need to, to be um, very concerned with this, and we need to, to know as well that there's big money behind the likes of Jordan Peterson. I saw the trailer for this movie, and it's, it's chilling in how, how, um, it, how respectable it is, and it's there to mainstream this yeah, ideology. Yeah. It, they're, got their exactly, they're reasonable voices on. Exactly, exactly. So it's, it's the propaganda machine. And so we are, the battle that we're really facing right now is that battle of ideas. It's a clash of, of ideologies, and we've got to ensure that, that our ability to put out the, the ideology of fighting, fighting for the you know, equality of, of all of us, that, that has to trump this ideology. So that's why we, we do need in to build this united front, to be strong and out there as a form of... Uh, can you? Oh, well, you're breaking up a little bit, uh, Debbie. Can Sorry. can you? Do, no, that's okay. It's not your fault. Technology, you know. Ah, oh, it's a damn. Um, can you tell us how people can uh, get in contact with your group? Yes, um, they can. They can email us, and the email address is antifascist dot push. So. Antifascist, A-N-T-I-F-A-S-C-I-S-T, just to make sure we're um, clear on that spelling, dot push, P-U-S-H, at gmail.com. Great. Thanks very much for talking to us this morning. Thank you, Annie. No worries. Time is running, I'm passing, I'm passing, I'm running. No more coal, no more oil. Carbon in the soil. No more coal. No more oil. Keep the carbon in the soil. A massive climate crisis right now. The world is literally on fire. The Amazon is burning. It is only the beginning of spring. And already Queensland and New South Wales are on fire. And we are expecting worse to come. Droughts are pushing farmers to the brink. due to climate change heating up our oceans. But that's just today. What about tomorrow? This is predicted to get a lot worse if we don't act now. Time is running, I'm passing, I'm passing, I'm running. You're listening to the first edition of Schools Out, radio broadcast by school-aged teenagers. Schools Out wants to put voices of young people concerned about climate change on radio. 
We'll interview young people involved in campaigns aiming to make governments declare a climate emergency. Stop denying the earth is dying. Stop denying the earth is dying. Stop denying the earth is dying. Recently, world leaders and media jocks have made personal attacks on Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old leader of the school strike movement aiming to prevent climate change. Greta's response to these personal attacks on her was wise. She pointed out that politicians criticising her personally means that they are weak when it comes to responding with scientific evidence. The leaders and right-wing media target Greta personally because they know they can't attack the science on climate change which is conclusive and verified by thousands of peer-led scientist reviews. Prime Minister Scott Morrison doesn't like the fact that young people are skipping school to go on strikes for climate change. Morrison himself would prefer to go attend the opening of a new smart drive through at a McDonald's store in New York rather than go to an important climate summit at the UN. I guess he was craving a Big Mac more than he wanted to care about climate change. As young people, we need to be wary of leaders who give us empty rhetoric rather than just sticking to the facts. We are living in an age where dogma is becoming more powerful than real evidence-based research. Young people can't vote yet, so we will keep striking to get our voices heard. Schools Out went to one of the September climate change protest rallies. Today, let's hear some of the recordings from the September 20 rally. Schools Out asked teens at the rally what their concerns were about climate change. Here are some of their responses. What are your main concerns around climate change? I think the biggest concern that I have is the inaction that people are taking. Mm. It's good to see people getting out and doing some things, but I think overall we really need to take some bigger steps. I guess my main concern would be where we're headed and where our governments and different systems are pushing us towards. My main concerns would probably be like, you know, digging up all the coal and different things that we can do more renewable in our constant production of things um, when we already have enough, I think, already here and we don't have enough renewable and, yeah, recycled things that we're doing. Where to begin? Oh, where to begin? <laughs> People know, know the facts, the facts are out there, but people are pretending not to know or pretending they're doing enough, but they're really not. There's this weird inaction and like pretending to be inaction. Yeah, or a choice to ignore. And I think it's pretty clear when we see the responses from the environment, if we look at what's happening not only in our own country, but globally, that there needs to be an action and to take better care. There's mass pollution, there's an overuse of gas and burning of fuels, which is crippling our environment, not to mention what's happening to the oceans and the sea life. Definitely all the single-use plastic that we're using. Basically, the government and higher social echelons lack of respect for the younger generation's opinion Mm. and ability to formulate decisions in relevance to climate change. And the fact that the world is literally dying. My concern is that it'll get to a place where it can't be reversed. But I believe that the current focus, the the disregard that government and corporations and whatever, you know, however the the societies run, the disregard will lead to tragedy. I suppose there's like a lot of like a polarised debate about how we should proceed and the debate sort of means that we end up in a place of inaction. And so I guess what we're sort of marching for today is to have any action, any positive policy Mm. towards addressing sort of the ecological disaster that's impending. That the world's going to (laughs) die. Great great concern. Yeah, pretty much that's the pressing issue, isn't it? main concern is that politicians and the important people in Australia aren't looking at it closely enough, Mm. and I think these people are proving that. 
Well, I feel like in Melbourne, we're not feeling the effects of climate change. We don't get to feel it, but there's those countries that are like Indonesia and yeah. like where the trees are being cut down and they're like palm oil. In, in the, for palm oil. Even though we're not feeling the effects of it, I feel like, oh, I don't know how to no, say it. No, in, yeah. in, in, in a human lifespan, somewhere in Switzerland, all the, um, remember all the ice has melted. It's changed from mm. a deep blue to like a really ice cream texture uh, and colour. I've heard that too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think it's just like, even though I, I think that, that's a lot of people who are ignoring it, is because they're in some areas where it's like they don't feel the effects, where we have to be more empathetic to the other countries. We have to think about other countries because even though we're not feeling it, they are. And, and it's going to happen to us. Yeah, and, it's, and we, don't do we have to take it. action. Yeah. yeah. I think it's bad that the weather patterns are going wrong and in general that climate change is happening. The lack of certainty in the future. The doubt that things will actually stay the same. Like, you know, there's going to be a lack of food for people. There'll be climate refugees. You're already losing a lot of endangered species, like animals in general. No one is really fully aware of the impact that it is going to have and how it is going to affect everyone, even if they don't think it will. Well, my number one concern would be the economic impacts, especially how it's going to affect farming and agriculture, because that will lead to famine, and that just creates all these other issues. I think, and I think that's something that the government hasn't really considered. It's pretty bad. I kind of want to, you know, let our our great 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 grandchildren like live. Yeah, yeah. In, a, in a planet that's not like a desert, you know? That sounds pretty good, yeah. yeah. It's just worrying that the idea of climate change is creating an expiry date for the planet. I think the idea of trying to elongate that for as long as possible seems like a good idea. That we're not going to do anything and it's going to be too late by the time we just start taking some actual action and have some political action because as much as we can get out and tell them what we want them to do today, it's going to take some political will from our politicians and if that doesn't happen, then we're a bit cooked. You know, it's it's really hard. We can get out here and do what we can, but as you said, you really need some real-life policies and changes in legislation for things to actually... Like, you know, the bottom-up is trying to do as much as we can, but we need some top-down changes as well. Stop denying the Earth is dying. Stop denying the Earth is dying. Stop denying the Earth is dying. Climate change is already affecting millions of lives. I don't understand why there are world leaders that are not doing anything. Sea levels are rising and so are we. Sea levels are rising and so are we. No more coal, no more oil. Keep your carbon in the soil. No more coal, no more oil. Keep your carbon in the soil. I want you to act as if the house was on fire. I have said those words before, and a lot of people has, has explained why that is a bad idea. A great number of politicians have told me that panic never leads to anything good. And I agree. To panic, unless you have to, is a terrible idea. But when your house is on fire, and you want to keep your house from burning to the ground, then that does require, require some level of panic. We are in the midst of the sixth mass extinction, and the extinction rate is up to 10,000 times faster than what is considered normal, with up to 200 species becoming extinct every single day. If our house was falling apart, our leaders wouldn't go on like you do today. You would change almost every part of your behavior as you do in an emergency, 
If our house was falling apart, you wouldn't hold three emergency Brexit summits and no emergency summit regarding the breakdown of the climate and environment. We are doing now can soon no longer be undone. We must all do the seemingly impossible. And it's okay if you refuse to listen to me. I am, after all, just a 16-year-old schoolgirl from Sweden. But you cannot ignore the scientists or the science or the millions of school-striking ch school children who are school-striking for the right to a future. I beg you, please do not fail on this. Thanks for listening to Schools Out, and thanks to 3CR's Solidary After Breakfast program for giving us a chance to be heard. We'll be back in two weeks for another episode of Schools Out. Time is running, I'm passing, I'm passing, I'm running. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC a 3CR supporter. And we're back on Solidarity Breakfast and thanks very much to the uh, Schools Out crew. They will be back in two weeks' time and uh, in between we'll have uh, Over the Wall, which is, going, is all about issues to do with people who are working and unemployed. And Marcus, you made it. Yeah, I'm here, yeah, and this morning we're joined by uh, Tommy Watson from the Westgate Bridge uh, Commemoration Committee. Uh, welcome to the program, Tom. Thank you, no problem. And uh, this time, 49 years ago, you were a worker on the Westgate Bridge. Yes, I was. I was 23-year-old uh, when the bridge collapsed on the 15th of October. And, yeah, do you want to tell us a bit about um, the days leading up to the uh, catastrophe? Well, a few a few weeks before, um, we had somebody who uh, was working on the job from Wales, and they come and told us that a bridge collapsed in Wales, Milford Haven. And when you go back, you know, all those all those years, there was no uh, mobile phones, no internet, no computers. Anyway, after a few days of, of ringing up and talking to people, we found out it was a box girder bridge, the same as a Westgate. It was the same uh, design engineers, Freeman Fox, who designed it. Four people got killed, and it got to the stage one morning, uh, 500, 500 people just refused to go to work, and we sat on the job till the union officials come and we got addressed by management. Okay, and what was the, the company's response to the workers when they raised the issues? Well, their response was that, that um, a bloke called Jack Hindshaw, who was the engineer who designed the bridge, told us he was the best bridge builder in the whole world, and the job was safe and we should go back to work. And as far as he, he was concerned, it was safe. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. And when, when the management left, because we were just sitting there with a couple of union officials who were really just rank-and-file people as we were, they'd been on the job a few years before, all I can tell you is what I did. I voted to go back to work because he 
he was on the job every day. He was on the coalface. And my argument was, and my attitude was, well, if he thought it was safe, he's there every day, then it's safe for me. But he went down with a ship and took 34 other people with him and we made a mistake going back to work. Yeah, October 15, 1970, of course, was the, the tragic day. I, I mean, obviously, you remember it well. Yes, it was a Thursday, 10 to 12, just on payday. Uh, you know, 10 to 12, people were, some people were sitting on the toilet, some people in the lunchroom washing their hands, some people were getting ready to have their lunch. And when it come down, I mean, there was about, I don't know, about 15 people in the sheds that couldn't get out, just just, just got crushed when the, when the bridge come down. They couldn't get out of the sheds. Oh, that's horrible. Oh, it was terrible. It was just, it was, it was chaos. And, and what happened was, when the bridge actually collapsed, um, no fire brigade, ambulance or coppers probably turned up for about 20 minutes, I think it was. And yeah. it was just workers on the job that were doing all the, all the, all the work. And but what was their response? Seen, well, if you've ever seen the Westgate Bridge, there's a road right beside it. And there were school buses going past and waving to us and because they didn't know what was going on. There was traffic. And when the fire brigade arrived, they weren't trained as they are today. And they couldn't use acetylene. They couldn't cut up the steel. They, couldn't, they just didn't have the equipment. So us as workers end up doing all the work. And it wasn't their fault. They just weren't trained to, to do that sort of work in them days. So actually what you're saying is uh, that actually changed procedures. Yeah, well, they changed procedures all the time to, to, to suit whatever they wanted on the bridge. I mean, disaster should never have happened. It was just, just ridiculous. I, I think they built the pyramids in a better way than they built the West Coast in them days. Is that when the safety laws started to change in Victoria with consultation? Yeah, well, that's when we went back 18 months later, um, then, then the health and safety laws started to come in. Then we Then we, then we had a bit of argument against the employers because we could bring in engineers and we could had our own argument but when you've got engineers saying they're the best in the world and you know you just got rank and file people who who follow and listen to what people tell you and, and when they make a mistake they, they impact on everybody else can, can you tell us go back to that day and tell us what actually happened after it was down what what you must have been in shock well, I, I was on the water's edge. We were transporting steel across from the Port Melbourne side. That's where all the steel was fabricated. Well, you, well, you, have you ever been in a car accident? It, it, yeah, it's I have. quick, but it's slow. Yeah, it is. It's weird. So I seen the bridge come down. I heard the crack. I seen people falling off it. There was smoke and there was flames. And everything was so slow, but it was a matter of seconds. From the time that we heard the crack to the time it hit the bottom was probably a couple of seconds. And then when we got there, I mean, there was... You know, I was 23-year-old, and there was people younger than me, and, and the first thing you look for is trying to save people. And, and the first couple of people you come across are, are bodies with arms and legs missing, and they're your workmates and your friends and your unionists. And all you do is looking for people who are still alive, trying to save them. And at the same time, the emotions go... It, it, it's hard to explain. It's just... It's a terrible feeling, you know? And in the, in the days following, uh, you mentioned that there was... One funeral after another. Well, what happened is it, it came down on the on the Thursday. Uh, we worked Thursday till pretty late. Friday, Saturday, we went in for a couple of hours on the Sunday. Then they told us to have Monday off, so we all had Monday off. So we go in Tuesday morning. Don't forget the bridge collapse on the Thursday. This is Tuesday. We go on the job, and the job was locked. The gates we couldn't get in. They herded us like cattle into a car park. 
and we all got sacked. 540 people got sacked on the spot. And then on the Thursday, there was nine funerals. On the Friday, there was five funerals. So we're trying to go to as many funerals as we can. No cancelling, no support, all been dismissed, you know. It was just a horrible, horrible thing. It would never happen today. I mean, nobody knocked on my door. Nobody knocked on anybody else's door seeing if they could help us. The only support that we had was from the trade union movement. It hadn't been for the unions. We would have had no support whatsoever. They had a shameful treatment from the company at the time to sack the, sack the blokes after they lost 35 of their comrades. And, and, and spent days digging, you know, trying to get the bodies out and go and visit people. And then, that, then when, when we all got sacked, they told us, oh, don't worry, you've done a great job, you know. Uh, when the bridge reopens, uh, we'll call you back. 18 months later, we go back on the job and they refuse to start our shop stewards. And no argument about victimisation or anything like them days. They just said, no, we're not starting them. So we went on, on strike for nearly six weeks to get our shop stewards on the job. And uh, there were several uh, workers who became uh, prominent union officials and uh, health and safety advocates. Off the West oh, Bridge. yeah, well, John, John Cummings worked on the bridge. I mean, I worked there. I was a union official for 33 years. Pat Preston, I can name dozens of people, you know. You, you, you know, if, if you're in a disaster like that and it doesn't change your attitude or your feeling on safety or health and safety or towards employers, what, what needs to happen in your life to change your attitude? And as you said, it was a, a, a tragedy, but you said if in 50 years' time, if you look back and say that's the worst industrial disaster, then... Something, something has, something has well, well, changed. It's the worst construction disaster in this country. That there's been bigger disasters, but they were in mines about two or three hundred years ago. It's the biggest construction disaster, and I, I hope in another twenty or thirty years' time, people are still talking about the Westgate Bridge. Well, that means there's never been another one. But hate people to go through what we went through on that day in a way we were treated, you know, with no respect, no, no counselling, no support for years. It was just terrible. Oh, it is. Re- it is important. Those thirty-five blokes are remembered, and the the blokes who went to work and never returned home that day. Well, as Aileen wrote it down, and uh, and and they survived, and and some of them, well, that many injuries are terrible, you know. And and we brought four or five of them back on the job when we went back to clean the sheds and all that. And we had to argue with the company over that they didn't even want them to come back, and I thought it might have been a safety risk. And there's a plaque there. I don't know if you've ever seen the plaque. There's a plaque that we go to every year. Uh, we, we nearly had to go on strike to put that plaque in. They didn't want to put it up because they told us it was going to be a toll bridge and they didn't want the plaque reminding people of the disaster and they wouldn't go over the bridge and use the toll. So we had to threaten to go on strike even to put that up. And if I'm correct, the, the workers had to raise money to pay for that commemoration plaque. Every worker put in a day's, wa- a, a day's wages. Yeah, everybody on the job put in a day's wages for that plaque, the employers in the company. Uh, late, later on, when the tide was starting to turn against them, you know, public opinion, that they wanted to put money in, we told them what to do with it. We just we did under all ourselves. And coming up on October the 15th is the 49th uh, commemoration um, event. Yeah, Tuesday, yeah, Tuesday week, yeah, 15th, yeah. And the following year is the 50th, and we're starting to plan that because that's going to be the last big one. You know, we're going to have a real big service for that one. But but we have one every year, and there's, and there's widows and family members that have come to every, every one they haven't missed, you know, and great. Okay, so what are the plans for the uh, 49th anniversary on Tuesday week? Uh, we've got uh, Tony Mapp, the Secretary of the Metal Workers. Could be, uh, union officials take turns at speaking. We're trying to keep pollies away and hangers on and all that. So Tony Mapp speaking, um, he does that. We do the roost and then we do the, uh, uh, the one-minute silence and all that. And, and then we go 
down to Williamstown to uh, to a couple of places in Williamstown and have a few drinks and catch up with people and and just try and celebrate it and rather than rather rather be memorial, we'll try and celebrate as much as we can. Yeah, obviously have a, a few drinks for your old, your fallen comrades and the ones who survived. And you said they, the quality of life the survivors lived wasn't wasn't too great. Well, there was two kinds of injuries. There was the mental in, injury that nobody cared about. And t- let me tell you, a lot of people turned to alcohol and, and, and drugs wasn't as bad as today and, all, and family breakdowns. And then there was the physical injuries and some people had terrible f- physical injuries. Because when the bridge collapsed, you could only claim one injury at a time. So if you had two broken arms and two broken legs, you can only claim one. Oh. And, the, and, the, and the government actually changed the law because the, when the Westgate Bridge collapsed, because it was absolute disaster. I mean, people was, you know, most bones in their body broken, got to pick the worst bone and get one claim. So that was all changed as a result of the Westgate. That's just breathtaking. <laughs> I know, it's, 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 you, you know, you... People, when you tell people the story, they don't believe you, but you've got to go back in time, and that's how it was. I mean, there wasn't one job that, that stopped and come down and helped us. There wasn't one job that put a collection to give us money while we're out of work for 18 months. If that happened today, there'd be hundreds and thousands of workers at, at the Westgate trying to help, trying to dig the bodies out, trying to get people money, people support. Society's changed for the better. Unions have changed for the better than what it was in them days. Everybody's been isolated in them days. Yeah, what was it? Was it uh, the lack of technology, social media, etc.? Yeah, I think it was a lot of things. Yeah, I, it was just yeah, we didn't have the communications like 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 we had in them days. I mean, when when we when we rang Milford Haven to try and get somebody over there um, to find out about it, you, you had to book a a phone call overseas. You had to book it three days in advance, and after three minutes, you got cut off. It's interesting so too because you guys were the ones who did the investigation, so you were all smart enough to know that there was a problem afoot. Well, well, the company Freeman and Fox and, and John Holland didn't want us to know about the, the one in uh, Milford Haven. It was only because somebody on the job, cousin or next door neighbour's friend or something, knew somebody had got killed on the job. Oh my god! And, and 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 the company, if we didn't know about that, they would never have told us. And it was exactly the same company for even Fox, Fox Girder Bridge, and then they wouldn't even have informed us. It was a disgrace, absolute disgrace. And there was only, if I'm correct, there was three Box Girder Bridges and two of them collapsed. Yeah, two, two collapsed and killed workers, yeah. Gee. They don't build them anymore, so... <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. It, it, it really is. It just, you, you know, they design all these things and, you know, on a bit of paper and on a drawing, and when you go to put it up, it just doesn't come together, you know. It was just—I mean, the, the, the steel was all buckled, and it shouldn't have been buckled. They, they take bolts out to try and straighten the steel, and take too many bolts out, and bridge comes down. Thirty-five people dead, and eighteen in hospital. You know. But, you know, it's also the arrogance of the class that does the organising and the financing, refusing to actually talk to the people who put it together. When we had the meeting, and, and as Jack Hindshaw addressed the meeting, he, 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 was, he, he was so arrogant because we were questioning his, his, his ability and his authority to design and build bridges. And he was looking down his nose at us. First time we'd ever met him. And he was so arrogant. He, he was just, he'd drive up the wall, you know, today. Like a real sergeant major in the army and things like that. You've got no right to ask or question. You just do as you're told and just go on the job. That was his attitude. 
Well, he went, did he? He went down with the bridge. Yeah, he went down. Yeah, he got killed, but he took 30 He got killed. <laughs> yeah, he got killed. Yeah, he got killed. No, he got killed. Because as I said, he, he was always at the workplace. He was always on the job. But yeah, no, he got killed. He, 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 his body was pretty well cut up, but... But look about what about all the innocent people? Yeah, he wasn't yeah. innocent. The other people were, you know. Yeah. We were innocent people. He wasn't. Thirty-four young men who went to work, of course, to make yep. a living, and never came home that day. Um, yeah, and that's thirty-four families and thirty-four grandkids, and they've never seen their grandchildren. And you can keep on going, you know. Just absolutely. And, and then there's a then there's us, the four or five hundred who just got sacked and got put on the scrap heap for eighteen months, and then get a telegram to come back to work and. And they tell us we're not starting your shop, stewards, you know. You you know, this is a really uh, important lesson uh, for a whole lot of reasons, but one of them in particular is this uh, outrageous uh, legislation being put in Parliament at the moment that's basically anti-union legislation, you know, this idea that unions are irrelevant. Well, if that legislation was in 1970, you see, I'm telling you how we were treated. Imagine if it was in what would be treated like now if that was in. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's even worse, even worse than it was in 1970. Yeah, people should really worry about it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just disgraceful, you know. I mean, you know, when we went on strike for our shop stewards, we'd probably get fined today. Yeah, that's right. And threat and threaten a jail and everything. And, and they didn't say our shop stewards, and, they, and you know, and they killed 35 people. We, we, we would have been... The, we would have been in court. Oh, these days workers get fined more, don't they, for stopping work over safety than what a boss does if they kill a worker. I mean, a, a boss can kill a worker and get away with it, but if a worker stops work over safety, they're criminalised and fined and all the rest of it. Blacklisted. Yeah, but because you're questioning, see, you're questioning their authority and their attitude, and they 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 know what's right. You know what I mean? And, and, and you're, you know, you're, you're a servant and they're the sir. They, you know, they're going back, you know, 100 years ago. It really hasn't changed in some places. And you were a workmate of uh, John Setka's father on the bridge. Yeah, Bob. Uh, Bob was one of the first or second people we pulled out. Yeah, Bob. Bob was, uh, he, he, he wrote it down. He, he had a lot of broken bones. He had a lot of injuries. But he survived and he went back on the bridge. And he, he's there every year. He hasn't missed once. And his grandson now is on the, on the committee, John's son. So, you know, we're... We're bringing younger people on the committee so we can keep this going for the next 40 or 50 years when I'm long gone and all the other people who have started it. The next generation will help, will keep it on. You know? It is important, and yeah, the all, legacy moves on, yeah. Yeah, it's always a legacy and a reminder to what can happen if you if you don't stand up for your rights and if you don't uh, have a go, you know. So next Tuesday is the uh, annual commemoration? No, Tuesday week. The Tuesday week, sorry, yeah. yeah. Just give us the uh, details again for the listeners. Uh, 10 to 12. Down at High Street, where the actual bridge collapsed near the glassworks there. Uh, 10 to 12, we'll be there Tuesday week. Thanks for talking to us, Tom. No problems. Thanks, Tom. See you. Bye.
once before. He said, Nina, keep on working till they open up the door. One of these days when they open it and the doors are open wide, make sure you tell them where it's at so they'll have no place to hide. So I'm telling you, I'm warning. Back on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus. And uh, on the phone, we've got uh, Marjorie Thorpe. She's going to give us an update on what's happened with the dub rung because there's been some developments. G'day, Marjorie. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Uh, we were just telling the listeners that the Jabberwung, uh, who have been protecting the uh, birthing sacred birthing trees just outside Ararat from the Western Highway, took the whole issue to court and has had a victory of some sort. Well, we have had... There has been mediation with um, major roads, um, Vic Roads, um, you know, to move, you know, to... To move this on because, as you know, it's been going on on over fifteen months. Yep. And um, there was no um, major roads weren't giving an inch here, and um, you know uh, the thought was that um, you know we're not unreasonable people. Um, there needs to be um, due process taken um, taken into account here, and that's what we're. Um, that's what we've got in court, the fact that um, um, we are um, we're objecting to the Minister not um, giving protection for those trees. And what is the reason that, that she won't protect those trees, the, minister, the Federal Minister? And, and the issue too, of course, is that when they went about doing this, they didn't speak to the right people, did they? Well, that's right. There was... Um, the, this um, draws attention to the problems that um, um, First Peoples in this state have had with the, um, the heritage, cultural heritage legislation and it brings into play the registered Aboriginal parties that are actually approved by the state government and the Heritage Council is also appointed by the state government um, and these are the people who make decisions over major... Um, development and um, decisions relating to um, you know, what's happening on country to um, to you know, our cultural heritage. It's, there's a, a lot of misunderstanding. I, I was speaking to someone last night, actually, who uh, is about the treaty process, and uh, she was saying that uh, she lives in Melbourne, but she actually, oh, no, she lives in Geelong, but her actual country is not where she lives, and uh, there's. There's a lot of misunderstanding, I think, going on around uh, how pe- uh, people's country is not the same place as where they're perhaps living. And uh, it's just an example of uh, how uh, European uh, col- colonists, effectively, are completely 
uh, misunderstanding what needs to be done if they want to look after the proper cultural heritage of this country? Well, you know, it's, um, it's how um, First Peoples are being treated by the, um, the colonialists, the colonists or whatever you call them, colonialists, since they came out. And, um, you know, this is, this is how our people have been treated um, from day one. So, you know, what would you expect um, 230 years later? Um, you know, there's no treaty, there's no consent. There has been ongoing human rights violations of our people. We've had, we've been incarcerated. You know, what more could you do to a, a, a people to um, to destroy them? How would you describe the current do- treaty negotiations in Victoria? Sorry. Uh, how would you describe the current treaty negotiations that have happened in Victoria? Um, would you call them a good nego- a negotiation? Um, now, we're very concerned about this. This is another um, state government that is um, imposing their will on First People. There's been a selective process where people have been chosen, appointed um, by government, um, you know, on advisory committees and whatever, to, um, to be part of this process. The tre- a treaty is, uh, you know, is a very important um, legal instrument um, to um, stop the, um, you know, stop the ongoing genocide of our people, if you like. If you, you know, that's that's what it is. We need, you know, we want to stop this ongoing war where, where you know, we're being um, annihilated here. We have no, we have very little land. Our people are in the worst situation socio-economically um, than, than ever. The statistics for you know our health, for employment, whatever you like, are you know unacceptably too high. So you know what are we supposed to do in terms of this highway? We have made a, a concession to say yes. You know we ha- we've got people out there protesting. Um, they've been there a long time, and um, you know there've been a lot of mistakes made, not by us, but by. Um, the system that um, allows this to go on, and so and that's what's happened here. So you got they went to federal court, and uh, there was a stop. They had to stop, and now what's going on is that the highway is going to d- be diverted from around these trees, and there is going to be some involvement in by the local. Uh, Aboriginal people, Indigenous uh, First Nations people to... Uh... It has to be the Japarung people. It's, yeah. It's Japarung land. You know, there are there are a lot of issues that we're trying to sort out at, here. Yeah. There is protection of land. There's the native title claim going on in the whole area. People have not been given the proper in, in information and they haven't participated adequately for them, for us to make a full and informed consent. All right. So and this has this has not happened, um, and we've been ignored. And unfortunately, the, the bodies that are representing us have have, um, have failed as well. And so, but as it stands at the moment, the uh, the trees aren't these particular trees are not being knocked down. And no. So the the protest 
of the local people ha- has achieved something. Uh, yes, and- it has. It, it has definitely, and it's moved this. You know, it's moved the um, the stale made on. And major roads would not shift at all. They were trying to continue to force this um, their will on us. Um, we are in the federal in, in the federal court where we're we're um, appealing the decision by the minister not to protect these tri- this landscape, and she was she failed to do that because she was not given the necessary information to make any decision, and she relied on um, the state for that, and from the represent the the, the um, organisation that was supposed to be representing our interests. And do do you still need people to stand guard on these trees? Well, we, we would expect with what's happened that um, you know this this um, um, this mediation that we have shown good that we're working in good faith here that we're we're showing good faith by you know agreeing to that small three point five um, kilometre stretch. That there be some preparation work, no, um, you know, no um, damage or in, in, you know um, to any trees or to to the land. So, you know, that's um, 3.5 at the beginning, which would have been happening anyway. But what um, we're extremely concerned about is what um, the trees from you know that go further. All right. So there's still issues that have to be sorted out. Absolutely, yeah. um, and we're going back to court in November. Okay. And what we're extremely concerned about is that while we're we're waiting to go to court, that people will, um, you know, the um, oh, the contractors and the other, yeah, yeah. So in actual yeah. fact, what you're saying is, in good old country uh, fashion, you know, if uh, they don't want something to happen, they burn it down. That type of thing. Yeah, that's what you're well, worried about. Well, and that's right. It's, um, people are very concerned. There's a lot of, um, you know, the racism out there in, in, that we have to deal with as well is, is um, still there. And um, issues like this make it harder for our people. Um, this has um, caused a lot of grief for, for people. Um, you know, what we should be talking about, if we're talking about a treaty, is a, is a better way to, um, better processes to resolve our issues. And make sure that there are areas in, in, um, in on country that are that are protected for everybody. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So, what when we finish this, what we're really saying is, it uh, they do still need people to consider going there as a camp and yeah. to yeah. Uh, talk with each other and learn about what's going on, yeah. and uh, and then there's going to be a continuing legal action going into November. Yes, that's right. That's okay. right. We we would expect, and this is the reason that um, you know the decision was made, that we would have no interference by the contractors. They are not to damage any of the trees or um, you know um, the land. Yeah. Um, until this has gone back to court. Yes, we've agreed to the three point five. Yeah. To ease the tension, and that we know this road has is going to happen. We we're not about stopping the road. We're about protecting, um, you know, landscape, cultural heritage, environment. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's about time everybody else was too. 
Well, we hope that we have got, um, you know, there's been a lot of wonderful support from, um, from many people. And um, I think this is a, you know, this effort has um, shown that yes, people are really concerned about this, and so we should be. We should all be concerned about the destruction of um, our environment, all of us. Thanks for talking to us this, this morning. No worries. Thank you. Well, 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 here it is again The way I feel is down but down You know if you toss a stone in a river It sinks to the bottom, it won't rise up either Hey, 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 this here's a test It may not be the last I tell you why I have to wonder When I get Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Don Sutherland on the line and we've got a very interesting thing to con- uh, have a conversation about. Hold on. Hello, G'day well, Don, how are you? I, I'm very well thanks Annie. How are you and my uh, best wishes to all of your listeners. Yes and Marcus is here as well. Hello Marcus, how are you? G'day Don, yeah good mate. Well we wanted to know and I was hoping that you were going to help us out here because you did some um, scurrying around talking to people. We'd really like to know a bit more about union relationship to the Labor conference and how that all works, how the delegate system works. Well um, that um, uh, that is a very complex uh, topic for someone like me who is not a member of the Labor Party, mm-hmm. and uh, so that, no, that's that, perfect for us because I went to a thing the other day, and there was a man who was from uh, Labor for Refugees, and so he was a member of the Labor Party. But he was talking about uh, union members, delegates being fifty percent of the uh, pool at the conference, right? Yes, that's uh, that's correct. Uh, so representatives. Fifty percent of the representatives of workers uh, come from uh, the pool of unions who are affiliated to the Labor Party. Yeah, right. So, how much push do, and pull do they have when it comes to policy arrangements? When it comes to the conference, because we all know it's well, all about politics. So, 
Well, there are two interacting things going on. Uh, And the answer to that question is contradictory because in some respects, unions uh, can be pleased that through their 50%, plus, of course, there are many unionists who are represented uh, through their uh, sub-branch membership structure, um, they do win uh, some sound, very sound policy. But the difficulty is that in the Labor Party rules, there is very, very strong uh, capacity for what you could call the parliamentary Labor Party to be able to circumvent a policy that has been endorsed at a conference uh, in, in order to, uh, uh, in, their, in their terms, in order to get elected or in order to um, uh, deal with the, the parliamentary politics, if you like, of a particular policy. So the parliamentary Labor Party often uh, modifies and even overrides the decisions of a conference. So how much power uh, workers through their unions in particular have is modified by that particular practice in the Labor Party? Yeah, righto. Uh, that's true, of course. So there is, in a sense, two Labor Parties. There's the ALP, as we know it, as a mass workers' party, and then within that there is the parliamentary Labor Party that has particular power to adapt and modify and even override a particular policy if it's in the interest of um, pursuing a legislative agenda or preventing uh, preventing an assault, if you like, from um, the right wing in Australia, represented by the Liberal National Party in the first instance and also by mainstream media, um, Murdoch media in particular. So they might justify or seek to justify, that is the Parliamentary Labor Party might seek to justify moderating or overriding an ALP policy, conference policy, for those reasons. With those uh, rules and restrictions you mentioned, is it possible that workers can one day take control of the ALP again? Um, Well, that's a huge question, and that requires, uh, as, as... uh, I have done from time to time a really close study of the ALP rules. Uh, nothing like that is impossible, but uh, it is in the Australian context, in my view, because of the particular rules, both of the Federal Labor Party or the National Constitution and rules and how they interact with the uh, the rules of the Labor Party that operate at the state branch level. So, for example, the Victorian branch of the Labor Party uh, has a separate but interacting set of rules with the national rules of the Labor Party. And there are some specific features of the Victorian branch's rules that are not in the national party rules but don't contradict it. Uh, and, and is that the same in the other states? Uh, off the top of my head, uh, it's it's likely that there would be, be yeah, but not uh, there would be similar specific provisions, but not necessarily the same as in Victoria. 
So, so what are they? they so, the, the, to go back to Marcus's question, yeah. I think that um, uh, if if something was to unfold, a mass social movement sort of pushing for a radical change in the character of Australian society, that is, as a, a capitalist society, then you would have to say that that would include uh, massive pressure within the ALP for big changes in the character of the ALP. You'd almost say there were two things that came to mind there uh, in answer to... Uh, Marcus's question, that thing about uh, the uh, chances are slim and slim's just left town. And, uh, the chances of, sorry. The ch- chances of change is slim and slim just left town. Um, um, it's a, a slight well, joke. Well, <laughs> well, I think, well, I th- no, I don't agree with that. Okay, good. Um, I, I, think, I think that... Um, uh, put it this way: If there was going to be, if there was going to be a shift uh, towards much greater pressure for a much better Australian society, then you'd have to bet that there would be big numbers of ALP members, either through their union uh, membership or through their sub branches, who would be active participants in that. Yep. And that would change enormously. Now, how likely is that? On the surface of things, it does not seem immediately apparent. <laughs> but that's just the surface of things. We know that there is bubbling up in Australia and not always, sometimes taking a very right-wing populist form as as, as shown by those workers who voted the way in which Palmer and Hanson wanted them to vote in the recent elections, yes. but it's bubbling up, and there is there is growing dissatisfaction with what might be called parliamentary and also economic business as usual. So, people, the possibilities of a shift are significant. What makes it less likely is that there is nobody either within the Labor Party itself or in the unions who are articulating and or leading on an alternative vision for Australia that is progressive, democratic, socialist in character because it democratises the ownership of, uh, of resources and so on. It, there is no coherent articulation of that at the present time. And, of course, that's the idea that that would um, be possible is that that is what has happened in uh, in a certain form in uh, uh, the United Kingdom with Corbyn, and it happened very quickly. Once it was unleashed, it grew very quickly. And the same thing with uh, the rise of democratic socialist perspectives in the United States has happened really, we couldn't say it was possible five or six, ten years ago. Yeah, but it's so, it's like... You know, if you if you add time as an ingredient in this, uh, do you think that the this groundswell of uh, people who um, are interested in a more socialist world uh, are actually, you know, if you add time, uh, it, it's almost like they're missing the boat. We're going to miss this boat because. 
the um, the right, uh, the wrong wing, and the corporate interests are sewing up the game. Well, they of course um, uh, the corporations control uh, the agenda at the present time. Of course, they do, um, but they don't have absolute control, and that's why they are so keen at destroying public and union intervention into the economy. It's it's as though they're saying, well, you know, we're in command of the situation, but we mustn't... They understand power better than we do in some regards. Yep. They are determined to snuff out any semblance of power for workers' rights. That's right. and, And that's because they're frightened of what might happen if those workers' rights were available to workers. And Don, if we have a look back at the ALP's formation, it was formed out of the shearers who were fighting against contract labour, against insecure work. 150 years later, here we are, fighting the same, the same thing. battle. Yes, it's a cycle in that. I think it's um, one of the interesting things about the employers' arguments about you know having a flexible labour force mm-hmm. and yeah. so on, is that, and, and they say that that's what's needed in the modern economy. Well, what they're actually demanding is a labour force that was the primary characteristic of the early 19th century and the late 18th century. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're just dressing <laughs> it up and they're just propagandists. It's not propagandists. Yeah, yeah, it's nothing it's, new. <laughs> they're yeah, pathetic. It's just the reproduction of uh, a workforce structure that it, it increases the rate of exploitation for their, for their um, corporate yeah. benefit. What do the bosses say? It's about freedom and flexibility, but who's, no, who's no, it freedom and flexibility for? Not not for workers, for the for the yes, boss to have exactly. a, that reserve army of labour. Yeah, it's now, really The pathetic. way in which we should look at organisations like the Labor Party and yeah. the Greens, in my view, is that we, we ask ourselves um, to what extent, and, and this applies also to the various uh, factions within them as well. I think factions get a bad rap, but um, we can come back to that in a moment, if you like. Oh, we've only got a certain uh, amount of time, but yeah, fa- yeah. factions, I mean, they wouldn't exist unless there was... De- let's uh, put it this way, yeah. is to what extent does the political perspective and its program and action stack up against the immediate and the uh, strategic priorities of the working class? Yeah, well, they seem and to that, be missing in action. And, and that in Australia, that includes our Indigenous peoples. That is a particular characteristic of Australia, although it's reproduced in other countries, you know, like Brazil, for example, as well. But the so that means three main things. To what extent is it really tackling inequality? That is the organisation, and then uh, and that includes the very basic immediate question, to what extent is it taking us out of fragmented competitive bargaining, a la enterprise bargaining, back into class towards class-based bargaining? Yeah. Mm. And then the second big question is, to what extent is it fair dinkum about uh, slowing down, stopping and reversing climate change by getting rid of fossil fuel-based production and distribution? And then the third thing, as I said, is to what extent is it speeding up progress towards genuine First Nations uh, liberation? Now, when you look at 
there are lots of people in the Labor Party who see enough about being there that they can make genuine progress on those questions. But there is a big question mark about whether the Labor Party can do that as an institution. And that's where this whole concept of movements comes in. Uh, Movements are far more important in getting change in the direction that we're interested in and which is critical for 90% of the population than institutions. And the only point of participation in institutions like the ALP or the Greens or whatever it happens to be is to unleash the potential of movements that are bigger than the institutions. Mm, So that, that has always been... That's a historic task of everyone, people who are... Uh, progressive in a sense in the ALP and those who are progressive without being members of the Labor Party, finding enough unity of purpose and task to be able to uh, build that movement. And that means being less dependent upon uh, Parliament or parliamentary democracy as we experience it. Everyone is complaining about parliamentary democracy and it certainly needs to be reformed, but it's a very limited way of uh, building a movement. Well, it's sort of interesting. The thing about parliamentary democracy, whatever you think about it, is that one of the reasons why it appears to be not working very well in the interests of uh, the general population seems to be that, uh, like Trump, uh, the people that are in power at the moment just decide that uh, they're not going to follow the uh, general rules of the game. Yes, and that's because, you know, theirs is the empire of capitalism. That's right. You know, we're living in capitalism. That's one of the rules of capitalism, if you like. That's right. Now, for the 90%, that's a broken rule. Yeah. Uh, Well, you've given us lots to think about. Um, Thanks very much for talking to us today, Don. Can I just add one thing on this point? Uh, recently the Chinese people celebrated 70 years of Chinese socialism. Mm. And I think, you know, there are always criticisms, and I would agree with some of those that are commonly made about Chinese socialism. But I tell you what, there is no other form of society that has so dramatically changed the living age of people. So, so the living, the average life of a Chinese person in 1949 was about 30 to 35 years. Mm. The OECD, which is not a socialist organisation, <laughs> has no. produced research that tells us that it's now pushing above 70. That's big. Uh, Indian capitalism hasn't done that. There's no other society, and that is a magnificent achievement. And they are, they have plans to make it even better. So with all of the complications and criticisms you can make, that is an achievement of a form of government that no other form of government has been able to deliver. Yes, well, that is food for thought. Thanks, Don. Okay. More about that another time. All the best to everybody. Yeah, thanks, mate. Thanks, Don. Um, and uh, there, this is a perfect moment to mention that there's a Workers' Solidarity Conference rebuilding a fighting union movement that's going to be on on Sunday, the 20th of October. 
you put it in, put it in your diary there, uh, where are we at, what do we need, how do we build it. It's going to be at the AMWU National Office, 251 Queensbury Street in Carlton. It's Sunday the 20th of October, as I said, 10am to 4pm. Union delegates, HSRs, organisers and activists are invited to attend. Yeah, 10am it kicks off, I think. Yeah. It's going to be a good conference. I think so. I think we need to, yeah. I think it's about time. About, we need to set about ways there to exactly. fight back and rebuild the movement. Yeah, and uh, and that is going to have to be in solidarity. Of course, yeah. I mean, under another, another uh, more attacks from the Liberal National Party, yeah, it's time isn't it, that we reorganised and fought back. I think so. Thanks for listening to us. And uh, that's it for Annie and Marcus this week. And coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents. We're going to go out with, oh, I'll tell you what we had. We uh, spoke to Debbie Brennan from PUSH about this upcoming fascist uh, concert, a private event, October the 12th. But it's really about uh, also being collective uh, around uh, pushing back against uh, the normalisation of fascist notions in our society. Uh, we uh, then uh, listened to our new little, um, you know, the uh, schools out, the, uh, stu- the young people who have put together a great program about uh, climate, that's their focus. We'll hear from them in two weeks' time. Uh, Next week we'll hear from Over the Wall, which is all about uh, unemployed workers' issues. And uh, after that we uh, spoke to – we had a riveting conversation with Tom Watson about uh, the upcoming uh, uh, Westgate Bridge uh, commemoration. Um, Yeah, Tommy Watson, he gave a graphic eyewitness account of the events leading up to the tragic day, 35 men lost their lives on the Westgate Bridge. Yeah. And the commemoration coming up on Tuesday, October 15th. That's right. Down at the uh, Memorial Park. High Street. And uh, we uh, followed that with a uh, talk with uh, Marjorie Thorpe, who gave us a bit of an update about what's going on with the Japawang and the sacred trees along the Western Highway upgrade. And uh, we then talked to Don Sutherland, trying to work out why the Labor Party is has been missing in action and what can be done about its... Uh, Return to usefulness. We're going to go out with uh, uh, the old weavers because they're lovely. It's called the other side. Rust red at the start of May. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.